Hi everyone, we're back with the Practical Protection Podcast. We're on Season 7, Episode 11, and today I have Lee Robertson and Roy McLaughlin with me. Hi! Hi, Catherine. Hi there. Morning. Good morning. Today we're going to be talking, we're going to give quite a bit of commentary today, a bit different to, to usual. We're going to be talking about things that are happening in the wealth and insurance space that's exciting us right now, the things that we would like to see maybe have a bit of a change and why, and something that we wish that people knew about the insurance world. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So I think this is going to be a really exciting conversation because it's, it's definitely giving our opinions out there and uh, possibly a bit controversial at times, maybe. I don't think it'll be too controversial, but you never know. But what's great is obviously we've got all of us here are huge advocates of protection. Obviously, Lee, Roy, you come from the wealth background as well and are able to bring in that kind of um that background is a sort of like how it all, it does naturally merge together because I think there's been quite a lot of years and quite a long time now where wealth and protection or protection and anything kind of has just been kind of removed and a bit divided and seen as like the possibly the little annoying cousin that doesn't shut up and like stop running around at the wedding or something and everyone tries to ignore so let's get off with you two at the side at the start then and let's talk about right what is it that you are both finding really exciting right now uh, well, I'll, I'll jump in, um, and this might sound slightly self-interested, I guess, because of optical. But the thing, the thing that I really noticed, and I, ju- I just wrote about it recently as well, is, you know, as as a as an industry, as a profession, we we used to rely on on publishers and life companies in the main to put on our events. And I think the, the thing that I've, I've really noticed over the last few years is how advisors of any hue are sort of banding together, learning together, cohort learning. You know, conferences by by advisors for advisors. And I think what's what I really love is the way that we're kind of setting our own agenda now. And and I looked at some of the social media the other day from from a couple of conferences. I looked at our event last year, and the feedback's just fantastic. I think that's that's the wonderful thing because only the advisor really knows what's going on within their practice or their practices more generally. So it, it sort of makes sense that if we are running our own events for each other by each other. Um, this is just an incredibly interesting development, I think, and I think long may that continue. Absolutely. I was going to say it's um, the, the thing that really stands out for me with that, Roy, is, uh, sorry, Roy, Lee, get myself confused there, um, is, the, is that it takes me back to when I was at uni and when I did my thesis. And my thesis was all about bottom-up change and basically saying if you're wanting to really make true change and develop and grow and things like that is one is the informal networking is huge massively important but that thing as well that you need to get people who are actually facing things who are doing things day to day together because they're the ones that really know how things are working you can get all these things from the top let's say but it should be this and it should be that but then as you get down those different layers towards the people who are actually providing the advice it just works out so so differently yeah and, and, and i think sorry right i, I think um that's absolutely true. And for me, the best part of any conference was always the networking, was to mix and mingle with your peers and share stories and, and, and you know, all the stuff that goes with that. So, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely sense that the, the collaboration of our industry has, has sort of gone up a notch and it needed to because you're absolutely spot on. I love the wedding analogy, Catherine. You know, <laughs> uh, we were the, I, I wouldn't say the annoying niece, but uh, but no, we were the, we were in many ways, the poor relation, uh, you know, from a protection point of view. And there was there was a little bit of snobbery, I think you'd agree, Lee, from, from some some parts of the wealth community about, oh, you do protection. Uh, and I've had that, uh, you know, over the years. But I, I, I think we're moving away from that. Um, and I think, you know, there are lots of lots of powerful reasons for that. But, you know, integral to that is just the fact that none of us will have clients that don't need protection. And I don't care how big your portfolio is or what sort of employee benefits you're doing or how big your mortgage is, there's a protection underlined there somewhere. And I think that, you know, now we've now we've reached a situation where yeah, our wealth cousins, our mortgage cousins, our group cousins actually get that. Um and and Lee's absolutely right. They they you know they will seek you out at conferences and you can hear conversations that you probably haven't heard for a while as opposed to, oh, you just do protection. I think that yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I mean, I kind of 
know, I, I'm a sort of vintage now, I guess. Um, but when I came into the, when I came into the industry as it was back then, you started with protection. Now that may be because a lot of industry was dominated by life companies, and there used to be far more than there are now. You know, you think of your your Scottish Amicables and all these great names that have disappeared over, over time or been consumed by others, um, or or sold off to be closed books even. But we we sort of started with protection as as the basic building block of any of any plan. Um, even we didn't even really, really call it a plan back then. Of any any relationship with a client started with protection. You know, the transference of risk from self and family in the case of catastrophe, whatever that catastrophe might be, for nominal sum, generally pretty reasonable over to over to an insurer was ex- fundamentally where we started in the advice process long before we got to investments or pensions or, or that kind of stuff and, and i guess over the years as the functionality improved within wealth and we got platforms and people began to drift away from life pros as the investment vehicle etc maybe that's where the rock started setting if rocks the right word where where we got slightly too posh to protect uh, i think that's a phrase that i picked up from you mm. i'm sorry i've <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is fascinating because, you know, I started off direct sales and you meet people, I, mean, I was with friends probably, but when you meet people who work for, for Alan Dunbar and, and MI Group and, and Abbey Life and all those sort of companies that we know that, yeah, absolutely, that the training was was very much protection first and then the other things came second. As the demise of the direct sales forces pretty much disappeared, I think that that was the problem, that there was no one out there actually talking about protection. And there was... And I've never quite got this. There was a reluctance of some insurers to, you know, to offer training on protection because what was put to me sometimes was, you know, it, it really isn't our role. And I think we've pushed back, Catherine, haven't we? We've said yeah. as an industry, please, 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 insurance companies come out, particularly to some of the smaller practices where, you know, they don't get that ability to, to go on these big training courses. Please come out and, you know, use broker consultants or whatever you want to do in order to help educate people about how protection products are and, and, and how they work. Would you agree, Catherine? Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say this just supposed to be very, very nicely to talk about education and things like that. Why to be completely self-serving as to about what excites me, which is this podcast, which obviously, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn or our, our horns too much. Um, but um, we have over 9,000 unique listeners now and over 22,000 downloads of this podcast. Wow. That's That's not a small amount. And considering how niche we are as well, you know, we're not talking – full IFA planning or anything like that or you know general public just coming in and listening you know this is very much going to be the majority of people are going to be advisors and you know there's over I noticed in the systems that I can look at there's over 2,300 hours of CPD that have been issued um, for what we're doing so that's showing how many people are really engaging with this and I think I find that, like we're all saying, and it fits in with everything we're saying there about the conferences, you know, from by advisors, for advisors. This is exactly where this has come from. This is advisors, and when Matt joins us, underwriter as well, you know, helping each other. You know, we're not getting funding from anybody to do anything whatsoever. It's just a case of us trying to share knowledge, give that information out there. And I think that whole collaboration, and I'm going to use your favorite word, Roy, as well, signposting and getting us all together and Ooh, yeah, just yeah. Yeah, and just realizing that we are a community I think we're trying to I, I think for quite a long time there's probably been this thing of these are my clients I'm going to keep them the mine I'm holding on to them no one's allowed to speak to them it's more a case of us all having a bit of humility and going actually I'm not the best for this thing and I know you've said it before well you know you've got an accountant you've got a solicitor you would never dream of either of those trying to step on each other's toes it's exactly the same with us guys you know it's a case of like you know what actually my specialist I can do that you know I, some people might be because I can do protection but you know what it's I'm, I'm not doing it day in day out and it's not my specialty I'm going to get somebody who is and really over the last I would say probably the last five years or so that collaboration side of things really just seems to have absolutely flown this very point came out literally last night and there is a obvious joke here but I was in a room with a, a solicitor an accountant and a bank um, so I'll, I'll let Lisa have that joke in a minute. But yeah, actually, this, sounds like the start of the <laughs> this, this very point came up, and you know, just I think it's important to listen to those. I call them our sister professions. I think it's important to listen to how they transact business. And and the point was made exactly what you just said there that you know, with all of those professions I've just mentioned, 
they bring different people to the table according to the question that a particular client has. The client doesn't care if you're bringing two or three you know, of their colleagues to the table. We need to do that, that more. That is signposting. And we've got to get away from this. You're absolutely right. This is my client. You know, it's like the homework at school, isn't it? Put, put, put your arm around it. Well, I was always trying to nick everyone else's homework before you say it. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, we've, we've, we've got to get our heads around uh, clients don't mind if you actually bring a few people along to be part of the solution. They might want you to be a conduit. Okay, which is fair enough. I get that, but actually, I, I think this sort of oh, I can't, I can't allow anyone else into that room. Um, you know, we we need to move away from because I think that problem's in our head as much as anyone else's. Look, look, I I agree with that, Roy. Um, you know, there's all sorts of phrases here, isn't there? Trusted advisor, but but if if the advisor who is the main relationship holder with the client, um, a, a client genuinely will be looking for great advice across a number of things. And if that particular advisor isn't skilled in a particular area, they should have no no shame at all in saying, listen, that's not what I do to you today, but I know a great connection who absolutely does this. I will make sure his standards or her standards are at least as good as mine in that particular field. I will help you through my black book or however you describe it, my trusted network of professional connections, however you describe it, I will introduce you to X. And I think the very best advisors that I always knew did that, you know, constantly. And it became a two-way conduit because there were, there were things that parts of you, that trusted network couldn't do and they'd refer back to you. So it becomes a, a very circular, helpful thing for, for the private client to actually access. So I absolutely take your point, Roy. There should be no shame at all and no hesitation at all in advisors of whichever hue referring things to each other for the bits that they cannot do. There's also the office line of jack of all trades, master of none. And, and I think the, thing, the fact of the matter is, is that if you try to claim knowledge of, you know, pensions, mortgages, protection, uh, complicated trust work, you know, the client uh, after a while is going to go, well, hang on a minute. You know, how, how, how many courses do you go on? How, how many exams have you got? You know, you seem to you seem to be an expert on a hell of a lot of things, which is what we know in life. Uh, a little alarm bell goes. Um, so, uh, Absolutely. So what do we think we would like to see changed and why would we like to see it changed? Uh, well, where do you start here? I, I, I mean, <laughs> uh, Roy and I have talked about this many times. Um, I, I think I think for me, the, the perception, I, I, for me, a place to start would be the perception of government and the regulators as to what the role of the financial advisor or mortgage advisor, whatever that role actually is. I think there is, they they sadly have to deal with the stuff that goes wrong. So I kind of get why they get sometimes a jaded view because it does go wrong. Um, but the the absolute proportion of, of advisors come to work to do the very best they can for the client each and every single day. And a lot of what government and regulator never sees is what I like to call the pastoral care that, that goes on with clients. You know, when... When they're, when they're about to lose a loved one or where they've just lost a loved one or where they've just had the most traumatic news or they've just lost a job or whatever those situations that every advisor encounters through their career. And we all know we've stood at the gravesides and gone to weddings, whatever those things are. But I really wish the regulator and the government would give a little bit more credit as opposed to thinking of this. And I cite this from a, from an MP. And maybe this is in my head because I, I was at the Tyser event at, at, at the House of Parliament yesterday, name drop, name drop. Um, but um, an MP said to me a while back, well, you advisors, really, you're just tax planners for the wealthy. And I was so enraged by him. He and I ended up having quite an argument because I thought it was such a dismissive thing for someone that, that had treasury responsibility to say. It was just ludicrous. And I thought you should come and spend time within practice to see what actually goes on. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. That sort of stuff really affects me. I'm sure there's quite a few of us that would have possibly turned around to the MP and said, oh, well, I just thought you did this. <laughs> and so maybe it would have been a two-way conversation with that. Yeah, or, I think, actually, I've, or actually I didn't, think, didn't do this. Yes, yeah, exactly. I, didn't do this. I, I think that's such an important point. You know, I mean, we've uh, recently introduced uh, we, we, uh, effectively a death pack for, for, for clients so that, you know, they can give us all the details of not only where all their policies are, but their wills and their kids and all that sort of stuff. And just putting all, all of that in a pack for people, because when bad things happen, people turn to us, you know, I mean, every, our viewers will be, uh, our listeners will be, will be familiar with the Simon Thomas story who, you know, he came out and, and, and openly talked about, you know, the role of an advisor post-claim. I mean, there's so many things that I think people people just don't realise that that we do. And also that confident as well. And I think one of the things that people are underestimate is that 
uh, you know, the likes of Lee and I will often be the first person that a lot of people talk to when there are major changes in their lives. Sometimes happy changes, sometimes, you know, good things that are happening. You know, I've had a pay increase or, or you know, I've, I've moved to a really good job or just bought a big house. But there's a negative things as well. You know, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the you know, I'm going to have to get divorced. You know, there's, there's been a death in the family. There's been some mental illness in the family, et cetera, et cetera. We are often one of the first persons that people turn to. A, they know they can trust us. We're not going to go off and, 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 and tell people about it. But actually, we are part of what often is the solution there. Now, a lot of that work, okay, isn't us, you know, doing complicated tax planning for people or lots of investments and planning. It's just us being good people and, and helping people out. And I, I, I wish there was a way that, yes, not only MPs, but you're absolutely right. I think the regulator also just doesn't quite get what, what we're doing there. Um, I mean, it's hard because... Clearly, this is confidential stuff, and we would never go and tell those stories in public. But actually, as an industry, maybe we should need to sort of represent what a day in the life of a, an advisor is and all of the other things that you end up doing for, for, for customers. Because I, I think, firstly, regulators and, and, and politicians would be, be shocked. But actually, I think there's a lot of people out there who are potential clients who would be quite shocked as to, the, to, to, you know, to, to those other strings to our bows. Yeah, listen, I, I agree, Roy. Um, and without it becoming self-serving, you, you know, you we can all cite stories, as you say, that we're very often the first port of call. And if if you'll permit me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story about a client of mine without naming names, obviously. And, and I got a phone call from her, and she said, and she, her office was yards away from mine, to be fair. And she said, "Could we meet? It's really quite urgent." And, and from that, I said, "Yeah, actually, I'm." She goes, well, we'll meet at this particular place. And we met, and um, she was a lovely client anyway, very very outgoing, very bubbly. Um, and we met, and I could tell something was wrong. And she, she sat and said to me, she said, you're the first person I've told outside the family or knew was outside the family or the medical profession. But my husband has an inoperable brain tumour. And so it, it was a difficult meeting for all, for all the reasons. I'd, I'd met, obviously, her husband, and we'd done quite a lot of work over quite a number of years. But I, I, I reflect, I've reflected on this many times since. And I think, what an absolute privilege, despite the trauma, the traumatic circumstances, to be the first port of call. And it wasn't about the money. That's not what she wanted to talk about. She just wanted to talk about the situation, where it was going, and to give me a heads up that we will have to talk about money, but I just can't deal with that now. But, but I think that's the role that good advisors sometimes find themselves in. As I come back to that word pastoral, and, and I think it is it is such a privilege. And, and I think people that end up in advice, yes, it's a commercial entity, and yes, you, you know, you've got to keep the money going to pay lights and pay your staff and your bills and, and all that kind of stuff. But I think genuinely most advisors end up in advice because they want to help people. And I think that's the privilege that we have in our role, serving our clients. And I use the word serving very, very purposefully. Quite interesting, and we have mentioned this before, Catherine, but I think we should revisit this, the use of cash flow models. So uh, I think hopefully Lee would agree that, you know, the majority of wealth managers in this country now probably use some form of cash flow modelling. And interestingly, what you will hear is something called the Black Swan event. And to a lot of wealth managers, I think historically, the Black Swan event was a stock market crash, correctly. So you you would model a, a stock market crash of two or three years happening in the future and what that would do to your investments going forward. And actually, what I think quite a few of us that straddle those communities, eye protection and, and wealth have been able to do is to say, OK, there's another type of Black Swan event, and that is someone getting seriously ill or dying or being off work, okay? And actually, it's really important. And, and actually, all the, all the cash flow models allow you to do it, uh, as Lee would, uh, uh, as I'm sure agree. But actually, people hadn't quite realised how to put that into the cash flow model. So it's, yes, it could be a stock market crash, but what happens if you were off for one year, an income stop for one year, and your company that you work for don't have a group income protection policy, 92% of companies, where would that money come from? And that would tend to come from your savings and your hard-earned investments. And I think it's really important that we disturb, but then in a positive way, engage with the wealth community and say, you know, let's talk about other things that happen and let's build those into those models. Um, um, because the functionality is often there, but I don't think some of the wealth community are using that functionality correctly. Is that, is that fairly? Yeah, I, I think uh, probably you, you're probably closer to Brian in, in many ways. I, I might slightly disagree with you, Roy, uh, in that I'm not sure that every as as many financial planning practices are using cash flow modeling as well as they might. 
Uh, and I think some there are definitely a section of people lip service to it. Um, because if they were using it properly, there would be far more protection sold as well as investments and, and pension planning and all that kind of stuff. But you're absolutely right when used well. And I think we we always tend to gravitate to people like us, don't we? Birds of a feather and all that kind of stuff. So we've got to be slightly careful because I, you know, I mean, I'm on a I've just finished a an eight-module course with a great a group of fantastic financial planners. So you tend to surround yourself by people that are rather like you. And because you do cash flow modeling, or, or I did cash flow modeling, and they do, you sort of think everyone does. I'm not sure that's the case universally. Um, in, in fact, I was told the story the other day at an event where you know they asked for a show of hands, and, and a huge proportion, I won't say the percentage, didn't put the hand up for using cash flow modeling. And I thought right. this is, and, and you think, wow, that, that's a conference for financial planners. And a huge proportion of them weren't doing cash flow modeling. So I think if there was greater adoption of that, we would see more protection sold because the very best financial planners are doing it properly, are doing those disaster scenarios, the black swan events, whatever they are, the modeling goes in. Um, so I think there is, a, there is a kind of solution there. More cash flow modeling will lead to more protection. I don't, as somebody who doesn't do the wealth side of things, and I don't do cash flow modeling, I understand it, but it's not something that I would be sat there doing with my clients, um, because obviously I'm not not a financial planner, I'm an insurance advisor. Um, But I think the key thing for me is that when I I speak to people in the wealth space, or when I'm chatting to people and they do have a financial advisor, especially let's take income protection as something. So just like where you were saying there, Roy, um, in terms of like taking time out for you. And I think it's part of something I do in my training as well, where I show that event where somebody has become serious ill, can't work anymore, and they didn't have income protection. And something that always stands out to me is I kind of think, but why wouldn't you, in a sense, why wouldn't you do it? You're putting in together this beautiful pension and investment plan. This person's going to be taken care of forever. And also as well, just talking about the commercial side of it, Obviously, the wealth planners, part of their planning and future forward planning is the return that they will get because they will take a, as far as I'm aware, a certain percentage of certain things each year. So they are getting a return each year. Why would they risk the clients, their future and their own personal, you know, commercial side of things coming to them each year? By not doing income protection. I mean, I, I know that there's probably some people who are so super wealthy that they would just wouldn't, that even with something happening, that maybe not even working in the first place, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they just don't need that kind of thing at all. But I just, I can't see the logic of it. But from an outside point of view, I, I don't understand the logic of why would we risk it? Because also as well, and it is something to be very aware of. So when we Talk about things like this. So if we talk about the financial ombudsman service where, you know, people can get told off. We were approached many years ago. And when we were approached, um, the the the, the FOS had come to us and had said, right, we've been received a complaint about an advisor firm. And we said, okay, you know, obviously we couldn't know any details or anything like that. And also, why are you speaking to us kind of thing? And it was a case of, right, okay, so we... We've received this complaint, and what it is, is that this person, this client has died. And the financial advisor or advisor, I didn't, I don't know which one it was, they didn't arrange life insurance because this person had a medical condition and they said that they couldn't be insured. We've not found any research, we've not found any evidence that they actually tried. It was more a case of this person's just really it just, it just seems like they've not done anything. They've just not given it a go. They've heard the medical condition and thought, that's too tricky, I'm not bothering. This person had died. Obviously, there hadn't been a payout. The family then were getting very upset, saying, well, why didn't you do this? And the falls had come to us and said, if you had had this information, assuming that it's all accurate as to what we can see and all this information we have, would you have been able to get life insurance for this person? And at the time, we said yes. We should have been able to, if this person, if the people had tried, if they'd done the research or signposted to somebody else, then they would have been able to get the the insurance. And what I think is really important here as well is to just bear in mind that that was years ago. That was way before consumer duties come in, all this kind of thing. So all I can think of is that advisors, if you're not doing this, and this is one of the things I, again, when I'm training people, I'm always saying to them, right, when you're doing your compliance, when you're doing all this kind of thing, I want you to write down what you've done, but I also want you to write down what you haven't done and why, because what you haven't done and why is just as important, maybe even more important than what you have done. And then it also helps you as an advisor, because if you can't come up with a good reason for why you've not done it, then you should be doing it. 
That's spot on. I, I remember a famous trainer at Friends Friends Life when I was being trained who said it, they should be called Reason Why Not Letters. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that always sort of stuck with me. But you, you know why that's so important, what you've just said about income protection, is that, uh, you know, people did certainly pre-COVID have the it won't happen to me, uh, you know, sort of attitude in their heads and and therefore it won't happen to my clients. And And, you know, if you're really unlucky, you become ill. If you're doubly unlucky, you become ill in a falling markets uh, cycle. Okay, and if you think about it, you're then taking money out of hard-earned pensions, ISAs, GIAs, or whatever you set up in a market that's going down. Okay, so you've got two bits of bad news there, and I think we need to, you know, we need to. I mean, sometimes we use the expression "insure your pension, insure your ISA," and have have something that's sitting alongside it, so that if uh, you know a, a long-term illness be- befalls you, actually you don't need to touch your investments at all. Um, and I think that's that's a sort of an education process that just needs to be done. Um, and, you know, the facts are here. I mean, they, they announced two days ago there are two and a half million people in the UK on income support. So, you know, that's a huge proportion of society okay, mm-hmm. who are off with long term illness. You've now got things like long COVID thrown in. And therefore, the it won't happen to my clients is, is a really, you know, it's, you're playing Russian roulette. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, genuinely. I mean, I, I mean, I'm picking up on a comment you made earlier, Roy. I, I think it is extremely rare, if ever, that a client or clients will have no need for protection, even if it's you know end, ends up gifting to divorce or joint life second death or whatever inheritance that planning at that end. But I think it's extremely rare. I, I in my whole career, I had one client who decided he didn't want to be invested but he was my outlier wealthiest client and actually because of the family wealth i kind of got it but they are so rare i think um and, and even he was open to the discussion you know we just decided having done the proper cash flow model having spoken to him about what would happen having spoke about the wider family wealth etc etc that i could i could accept reluctantly there was no need but funnily enough he did come back later on because we then had to Get into the inheritance tax player so he came back you know regular reviews and all that stuff at a future meeting we got back onto protection because of what we had to start doing for the inheritance tax planning so i think it's genuinely extremely rare uh and, and maybe maybe there's a kind of historical basis for this with me i mean I, i'm from a small town in scotland huge believer in protection which is why we're so involved with this podcast captain support it mm-hmm. but um you know, I can think, you know, my uncle Alistair was industrial branch for the co-op and he used to meet his friend Archie, who was industrial branch from the refuge. And basically they had the whole to small town in Scotland, I get that. But basically the whole town sewn up in terms of Alistair at the top of the town and Archie at the bottom of the town. And they met every Friday to meet for a pie and a pint and, and kind of talk about things. But every adult in that town and outlying, and the farmers were all done by um, Farmers Mutual, whatever it is, but um, everybody was insured. And then if a working class town can accept that, I'm genuinely unsure why as, as you know, people have got welfare and more assets and stuff, they're not insuring the way that they used to. It, it, to me, there's just there's, there's a disconnect somewhere, whether it's become, for all the reasons, you know, as you say, too posh to protect, it's become too complex, there are less insurers, there's less confidence in, in a certain amount of the advisor market in the whole protection thing. It is highly specialist and it's got more so, I would say. But then that's that's where the signposting comes back in, you know, and refer to someone who knows what they're doing, work as a collaborative professional with your client. Absolutely. I was going to say my my thing to change, I've said, I know we've just been uh, having a good chat about that, but something that I would really like to see changed. And, and I know that this won't be popular with everybody, but I'm going to say it anyway, protection qualifications. I find it really bizarre that... Obviously, people who do wealth and pensions and mortgages, all of them have to have certain levels of accreditation to be able to be authorized to advise. I don't understand. And the thing is, as well, that's this to me adds on to that industry perception, even internally in within advisors, as to the fact that protection isn't as important because, well, you know, in a sense, it's just that thing from the start. Well, I don't even need to have you know qualifications to do that. All I need is literally somebody to employ me, and I can be on the phone in twenty minutes and providing advice. And it's you know, it's, it's to be, which is beyond terrifying because it could be the person they're speaking to needs complex IHT or gift planning, and they can just go ahead and do that. And that that is very very worrying, obviously. And I I don't understand why we don't need that. Now I can imagine 
I can imagine cynically some things. So my cynical side of it would be that it's not being called for because there's maybe firms with lots of people who provide advice who don't have these qualifications and we don't want to suddenly have to see companies having lots of issues. And I'm sure there'll be lots of pushback from companies where they don't require it. But I can't understand from the regulator's side why it isn't required at all because we're not doing small things. You know, as we say, we're doing things that are incredibly complex. We literally, and, and as well, thinking about it, it isn't just the regulator. This is also all the state things as well. So if we don't get income protection rights and, and things like that, our private medical insurance, and that means much more pressure on the NHS, much more pressure on state benefits. So you would think that the regulators and the government and everybody would want this to actually be happening to make sure that people are being advised in the right way to take the pressure off um, public funds. So, and, and also as well, I have to say, I if we're doing things like protection qualifications, I think there needs to be a broad representation of people involved in it because previous versions of doing an actual protection qualification, so I'm, I'm not just talking about um, individual modules, but an actual qualification of some sort, haven't necessarily worked exactly as we would like it to. Let's just say that's probably the safest way to say that. So, very, so that's very, very, dipl very diplomatic. I mean, yeah. uh, to expand on that, obviously, myself and your husband, as you know, Catherine, went to uh, see a certain uh, uh, regulator, like regulatory exam setting uh, people mm -hmm. and, and talked to them about the current so-called uh, protection exams, which aren't fit for purpose because they're asking about products that basically don't exist anymore. And their terminology is generally all about general insurance, as you know. So, yes. uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. I mean, the, the impression, I guess, that the problem we've got is, it goes back to Lee's original point, we need regulators and government to take us a bit more seriously, and that would probably help there. I mean, there is a there is a little bit of laissez-faire, and probably too much sometimes, um, but uh, um, that, that, that it would be a challenge for some companies, though, because, you know, to a bigger company, you would have to take a lot of people out for a particular period of time. I'm not saying don't do this, by the way, but we need to think through it. But I, where I totally agree is the people setting the exams actually should be the likes of ourselves because it's yeah. people who are dealing with stuff on a daily -day basis on subjects that people are actually, uh, you know, are being asked about. So uh, absolutely, um, it's pointless when you're sitting like a protection exam and all of a sudden you've got a question in there about private medical insurance, completely different rule sets, nothing to do with protection whatsoever. And then there's also, you usually get getting the home insurance as well. It's just like, okay, well, so that's, there's usually at least one chapter on general insurance. There's usually a chapter on long-term care planning, which we're not allowed to advise on anymore anyway. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of like we need to figure out something. It, it, it's an interesting thing. Can, can I ask you a question of you both? Mm -hmm. you know, I've got your big brains here. So we've got, is it just from memory, it's RO5 is protection, isn't it? From the you've got. You've got the CII Hour 5, and then you've got LIBF Cert Pro. Right. Okay. Which are pretty much, I don't know, I'm going to say, they're pretty much the same thing, but the exam in itself is different. And also with the LIBF, you do, you are then awarded Certificate of Protection, so you get Cert Pro right. after your name. Okay, so. I've said both. Right, okay, I'm sure you have, I'm sure you have. <laughs> I tested um, it for my team. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is, are those the ones that really need an overhaul then? Is that what we're saying? That, that they're, they're no longer quite fit for purpose? There's also the thing, is it 15 hours protection CPD that's got to be... Well, every, 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 everybody yeah. now is required yeah. out of their yeah. 35 hours. If you if you have 35. an intention to... Uh, so we all have to do 35 hours a year. Now, yeah. if there's an intention to sell which doesn't mean you sell it. There's an intention to sell protection. 15 of that 35 does need to be protection. Right. Um, so so that's quite interesting as well, which which takes us back to an early point of uh, insurance companies that are listening, please, please, please come out with more courses because what Catherine and I do find is sometimes people going, I don't know where to go. And right, you can do a certain amount of that 15 hours by reading and an excellent podcast like, like Catherine, et cetera. But, you know, uh, people still, I think, want to go on courses uh you know where they where you know things like you know overcoming objections i mean that's something i get asked about all the time in the training that i've gone off and done you know how do you overcome objections you know though now that goes back to lead to, to you know where you and i were taught okay but is there enough insurance companies out there helping with those sort of subjects um i, I would argue no 
in terms is, of sorry, sorry in, in just in terms of the actual regulatory body so with the li with both of those exams that we just mentioned both of them obviously provide a lot of protection background but they do have chapters in them that are general insurance or or chapters on things that we are not allowed to advise on as protection advisors which is obviously very very confusing i have heard some reasoning behind it before but i just think we'll just replace them with more content on something that's actually much more relevant. What yeah. I find quite disappointing is that there used to be some underwriting modules that are no longer available. So you can't actually do enhanced underwriting as as just sort of like, which is very, very essential for protection advisor to understand a lot of things on that. But I think what's key for me is I mean with LIBF you get a certificate in protection, which is really positive. You know, it is it is a certificate. With the CII hour five, obviously it's 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 an important exam. It sits in with all the hours, but the way that's it, I think hour four is possibly pensions. I could be making that up, but whichever one it is, you wouldn't expect someone to sit a module on pensions and then go out and then start providing complete advice with no, with nothing else happening on pensions you know you would you know obviously i don't know all the exams but i know this you know when i hear people about doing financial planning they have to go through all, all the arrows and then i think there's afs and all these different things things that i've obviously never sat or been involved with so i wouldn't possibly comment on the content but there's no at the moment to say like with the cii especially there's no pathway for someone in protection to go high for protection to go high you would have to go there's one there's one module on protection there's one module on group uh, risk, group protection risk. Everything yeah, GR1, else, isn't it? Yeah. GR1. Everything else is pensions, investments, taxations, things like that. So you know, obviously the tax ones potentially, you know, could be seen as as useful. But ultimately, there's a, unless you're wanting to go down fully down a financial planning route, there is no route for someone who's in protection to really go beyond two or three modules, um, which is. I, I think it just makes it seem as if, again, it's like, well, is there just not enough information there? There could be a, a, a huge, huge need for things like underwriting and understanding how that side of things works. You know, there's massive potential there. But again, because of the fact that you don't need to have these exams, it's like someone who does mortgages, they'll do CMAP. I don't know how many exams that is, but it's a number of exams to get the CMAP to be able to advise. But there's just nothing equivalent in protection. So, so that that's interesting. Then coming coming back to this, um, Catherine, you you talked earlier about perception and and did do financial planners look down on protection advisors and stuff? Do you think there's something in this then that that uh, and I say this, you know, somebody was in the forces. The more training you got, the more specialist you got, you look down on everyone else, and with all these terrible terms for each other. But is is there something in this then that that it's seen as a low barrier to entry to become a protection advisor? by the financial planning committee you think, well, that's protection. Well, you know, they, they, they can just sort of turn up and start work. And we can't. We've got a high barrier to entry now. Do you think there's something in that? Or I, I, I think there's, no, I think, I think there's definitely something in that. It's also, I, I guess we've never really been seen as, you know, that sexy an industry. I mean, there's, there's, there's something about wealth that seems to be, you know, it's a bit more respectable and you're, mm. you're, you know, you're helping people build huge, you know, huge uh, amounts of money. And that's, that's, that's a, always be, been seen as a sexier, but I think, you know, we need to break down these barriers and just, you know, where, I mean, it doesn't matter if you want to call yourself a wealth manager, a financial advisor. I mean, actually, I think that's a bit semantics. We get caught up in that too much, Lee. I think, you know, we are giving advice to our customers who probably need a pension, an ISA, some protection, uh, you know, some PMI if, if that's appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't actually matter, but we should be looking. I know I know people scream when I sometimes use the word holistic, but let's think of a better word. But we're, we're looking at someone's whole financial uh, life and solution and and all of these things come along which is why those barriers it's really important to break break down and, and if it if it means that we need to bring an exam in to try and make protection have a, a slightly more respect that's that, I, I suspect that's a, a part of it part of it absolutely okay, so, so I, i'm going to embarrass Catherine here because I, I i believe that we are genuinely living in an age where you can learn just about anything and you can learn a lot of it for free or for very, very little. Are you going to challenge me as to why I've not done wealth and pensions, Lee? Are you going to say it to <laughs> no, Because I was no, going to say, I was, that would be no, embarrassing. Well, well, I might do. No, um, no I, was, I was actually coming from the other end. Uh, and this, this this might embarrass you here. In, in the, and, and it also comes back to this point about by practitioners for practitioners, by advisors for advisors. I mean, the advice for advisors training that you deliver is, is genuinely, genuinely, Top of the top of the tree, 
Okay. So there is sort of no excuse if the PFS or the CII or LRBF isn't delivering the training and protection that's, that's up to snuff. There are other ways to find it, and advice for advisors being absolutely one of those. Now, you know, I, I look at the discounts that you offer through Octo, but I look at the quality of that training. It is superb. It's the sort of training, Roy, that we got back in the day from life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's up to date. It's relevant. It's it's based on actual case studies and the huge experience that that Cura has built up uh, of doing this. And, and I'm talking to two of the most, you know. Um, skilled protection operators in the UK right now, and I never was, but I believe firmly in protection. So I think if you want to do the training properly, seek out advice for advisors in one place. I'm sure it's not the only one, but it's the one that I know particularly. And that's not to embarrass you, Catherine. It's just to say that if you want those skills to be able to do your job properly and you cannot get it from professional bodies or the life course aren't doing it. And I remember the training we used to get from life course, Roy. It was absolutely top of the tree. They yeah. all shut the technical desks and their and there are so few fewer companies now around, etc. The, the technical desks have gone, and the training departments have gone, and all that kind of stuff. And there's all the inducements and all that sort of stuff that's somehow fed into the bled into the mix. But I think if you want training and protection, if you want to be the best possible financial planner you can be, you must have protection as part of the canon. And if you can't get it from the, the traditional outlets, seek it, seek it out at a place like advice for advisors, not to just plug what you're doing, Catherine, there are other providers out there, but it, what you're doing is absolutely top of the tree. So you can get this skill if you set your mind to it. And and I think the thing that sets good planners apart from average planners is they have that constant curiosity and they constantly want to learn it. And if that's not part of your canon, go out and learn it. Or if you don't want to do that, find a really good advisor that you can sign post to. Absolutely. Definitely. Here, here. I think the other the, the, the other interesting angle is, is what happened three weeks ago. Isn't it fascinating? Our whole industry, uh, uh, you know, suddenly had this huge news story about pensions. So for, for our listeners, uh, you probably uh, hopefully have realised that the pension rules <coughs> were pretty dramatically changed yeah, like three weeks ago. Um, and suddenly there was loads of publicity, not just internally, but externally as well. You know, it was on the front of, of all the major papers. People are talking about those pension changes out there the whole time. My immediate uh, um, uh, subject matter that it, it goes hand in hand to this was tax out on death, okay? Because there's some pretty major changes that were made in, in terms of that. Why is an industry, are we not talking about this? And I talked to Ron Reekroft about this the other day, who, who totally agreed. He said, you know, those pensions changes have a big ramification on what happens on death and, 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 and that therefore brings the whole subject back to us. You know, why is it that we're suddenly not talking about the insurance side of, of, what's, of what's changed? It's all about the pension side in, in, in isolation. And you can't have a pensions chat without talking about death. OK, which yeah. brings that whole subject up. Um, so, you know, the big debate about registered and accepted life trust. OK, yes, there's some group stuff, but conceptually take that over to, you know, to, to, to normal life insurance. You put, you've got to be having these conversations. Um, now, maybe the P, maybe the protection industry needed to PR itself much quicker when that happened. OK, but, you know, I think we did, this is where the joined up collaboration bit is, 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 is so vital. These things are not in isolation. They can't be. Absolutely. So to come towards the end of the podcast, then, do we have maybe each of us one thing that we wish more people knew about the insurance world? So we've got silent. I'll start. I'll start. I think, um, and uh, I, I can hear Kevin Carr's and, and, and lots of people's uh, uh, um, things in my head at the moment. I think we still need to promote ourselves far better than we do as an industry in that there is this thing called financial advice out there. Okay, I've spent the last, uh, last few months a lot of my time going out and doing cost of living uh, chats to corporate clients okay because that is the thing that is obsessing quite rightly most employers in the uk right and it's something they need help with and and we've got a huge role to play there as we talked about in the previous podcast but you know you go along and you talk to people and and, and it's really well received and, and they get it and you really help them out with things like budgeting and just some really basic stuff and the, the feedback you get the whole time okay martin lewis has mentioned a lot but the feedback you get the whole time is we've seen this soundbite on tv we've seen some some really quick advice on on martin lewis or whoever it is that there are other, there are other influencers that are available to, to podcast um but what happens next and i've started talking to people more and more about what a financial advisor is okay and do you know what 
particularly amongst 20 and 30 year olds, they just don't know who we are. They don't really know that we exist. And I think we've got to PR ourselves so much better. We're, now, we need the insurance companies to help us do that because it can't just be in, um, advisory firms. But, you know, there is this mass, uh, you know, there is this mass market solution called financial advice. But if a 25 year old doesn't even know who we are, Catherine and Lee, okay, right, what help, what, what hope have we got? And there are some unintended consequences of the RDR, Lee, and that's a chat for another day, I know, but I, my, my, my hope would be, you know, to get government, insurance uh, companies, reinsurance companies, the press, you know, all in this sort of collaborative thing about advice is so important. Because if you look at other countries, it happens there. In America, there's a big thing. They have a they have a, a month of uh, a disability awareness month, and it's all about financial advice. And you know, I just think we we we're, we're too shy. I think is the problem. You know, uh, what you do about financial advice? We're always whispering it into our hands. You know, let's promote it more. Yeah, uh, listen, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, listen, I I love a bit of history uh, and. And historical figures, you know, I love reading biographies and autobiographies and stuff. Um, and, and there's this fantastic quote by perhaps the greatest orator of, of the 20th century, Winston Churchill. And he said, if I had my way, I would write the word insure upon the door of every cottage and upon the blotting book of every public person. Because I am convinced for sacrifices so small, families and estates can be protected against catastrophes which would otherwise smash them up forever. So if if the great man Winston Churchill thought insurance was important, why are we not building more of this? So I, I, that, that's the thing I would change. If, if I could change, if I could wave that magical wand, I would want people to think across the whole advice community and the public to understand that for a relatively modest cost, you are transferring the risk of catastrophe away from you and your family onto an insurance company. Absolutely. And I think for me, probably... Without, well, it's going to sound really dire, but um, I think for me, the key thing is to for people to maybe understand that, you know, there's no one else to rely on. You know, that the state isn't going to be there. If, if you're ill and you can't work, you know, statutory sick pay, it's, it's two and a half thousand pounds to live off for six and a half months. You know, I, I don't know anyone who could live off that amount of money for six and a half months, especially if there's a family involved as well. And even after that, if you were then at the point of getting disability allowance, which is known as the um, this PIP now, I think, um, that it, it's not a lot of money. And, you know, and I think some people might think, well, other people, if they're really ill, they, they are able to live off it. But I think the point is, is that there's living and then there's living, you know, mm. and there's being able to survive just and but then also taking steps where you can just go, right, you know what? If this does happen, I don't want to just be surviving and having to deal with all of that health side of things, as well as all the financial strain and stress that'll be involved with it. I can actually at least I can at least on the financial side of things take steps to to sort of help. So and as well, and going off into a slightly different thing, the thing like the pensions as well. Obviously, I know I can't comment on pensions, but again, state pensions, they are not they're not in a sense reliable, they're not contractual. You know, it's 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 all a bit kind of, you know it's a funny old world of state pensions um and again with things like the income protection it's a case of it's gonna you can still keep paying into your pension you can still keep doing your ni contributions if you do want to get obviously the state pension and things like that so so it's it's a bit of annoyance now to stop a very significant pain in the long run can i can i throw in one more wish i know you can only have one oh, go can, on I, can, can i have two go on again then. I, I, this is just anecdotal, uh, the feedback I get from, and I've literally spoken to hundreds and hundreds of people over the last six months. Uh, the one thing that everybody says, particularly in their 20s, is could we have not had some some teaching at school? Absolutely. Okay. And I think, you know, maybe not as 11-year-olds, but let's bring something into the curriculum when they're maybe 14, 15, okay, uh, and, and just give some basic stuff because people are coming out of our education system, okay, and, and, and by their own admission are, are ignorant of financial affairs. And actually what people say to me is that, because um, I say, are you sure you would have wanted to learn that school? And they go, yes, and they all say yes. So yeah. that's, my, that's my one. That's probably pie-in-the-sky wish, but... Uh, um, Absolutely. It's something we definitely need to address. But I did notice something the other day, actually, because I, I tried to apply for it for my children. But then it said you had to be, I think, 14. The CII have deemed um, teamed up with the Duke of Edinburgh to do some do a I think it's a bronze award in like the beginnings of financial 
advice. So obviously, that is depending upon the people who are obviously doing the Duke of Edinburgh who can potentially access it. But I mean, we're I'm a governor to the junior school here. Alan's a governor at the senior school. And a key thing for us is at some point is to try and maybe develop a session or a couple where we can go in and just go and have like a a bit of a fun interactive thing where we're not saying pensions and we're not saying critical illness or income and all this kind of stuff, but just saying, right, you know, along the lines of, right, you've got some money. Now, in the long run, do you want to give me a little bit so that if this money stops, I give you lots back? Or do you want to just keep it all for yourself and just hope? And, you know, it's it's trying to bring it back to sort of like those levels where it's it actually makes sense to them. I mean, I don't know if it's still going, but we used to support it when, you know, when I led Investment Quorum, we, we supported it and we used to uh, send people along. But the PFS used to have something called Discover Fortunes, which was aimed at school children and learning about money. So I, I'm not sure if it's still going, but that might be something to, to, to have a think about. So, uh, But if, if it's not wide enough spread. It's too patchy. It relies on uh, voluntary stuff. But I, I'm with you, Roy. Um, it seems ridiculous that, that there's no form of citizenship, if that makes sense. Yeah. in schools, particularly in secondary school, and part of that would be a bit about finance, a bit about you know um, credit card debt and all that kind of stuff. It just it just seems to me that it's a big gap in a in any school person's curriculum um, in a way that that perhaps we got. I mean, I I'm much older than you two. I I remember, but you know, I keep going back historically. But at primary school, despite coming from a very modest family of modest means, all the school children had a passbook, and, and once a week we took a few pennies in. And our primary school teacher put the money in our passbook, and and it, it became this game as to kind of you know saving up and you know but you know it was it was really interesting. So I, I think it started really young back then, but we seem to have lost that along the way, which is a crying shame because I think people are coming out of school sort of, um, and unless the parents have helped them, mm-hmm. they don't really understand money. They don't understand um, uh, you know how credit card debt is corrosive and all these other bits, you know, store cards or whatever. But anyway, I'm. I'm in danger of getting back on a soapbox. Perhaps that's for another day. That's just reminded me, actually. I probably shouldn't say this, seeing as though I do work in advice and everything, but at the moment I am teaching my children bribery. Now, and, and with money. I know usually we do that with chocolate with our kids, <laughs> but I've taken to paying them for reading books. So they have like their own little, they have their sheets now where they can write down the book. They have to say if they enjoyed it or not. One of them gives it a rating out of a number. Another one's a smiley face, sad face, and myth face. And then I, I give them, I, we write it down to go, right, this is how much money you've earned <laughs> by reading a book. And it's, um, it's yeah, they, they know I'm bribing them. It is trickery on my part, but essentially I'm still winning because they're reading. So, <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well thank That's you a money lesson, Catherine. it is it's a money lesson isn't it uh, so thank you everybody for listening and thank you lee and roy for joining me today um, ne- it's lovely to have you on next time i'm gonna have matt ram back with me and we're going to be talking about arranging protection insurance for people who have sarcoidosis if you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD, CPD certificate even on the website too. Thanks to our sponsors, Octa members, which is Lee's um, financial networking uh, company. And I would definitely suggest that you have a good look on that for, for tidbits and informal networking. So thank you both. And I'll speak to you soon. Bye. See you soon. Thank you. See ya.